Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Strevens, and it's my birthday, so I have a gift for you. That's right, the gift of more inane prattling about things that I don't understand. Um, I think in order to make my quota, my quota of 100 episodes by the end of the year, I'm going to have to do a little bit more of this solo ranting, which wasn't the plan from the outset, and I don't know if it helps or hurts the brand, but... Um, I think a, to make the quote, I'm going to have to do it. Plus B, I think some of the ideas that I'm starting to hit on that are starting to present themselves require a lot more work and a lot more regular work. So I'm doing a lot of writing, you know, texting back and forth with my good friend, Devin Bailey. Uh, but I need to be verbalizing a lot of this stuff more regularly and getting it ready to take to the guests and not having this divide between my sort of ideations about things and then just talking to people about whatever i think it's time to start really working these ideas into the conversation um and kind of taking a bit of ownership of the theme and i guess of the of the show you know and of course it's not just my ego but it's it's uh some ideas that are that are presenting themselves i think i need to direct the the discussion of those ideas uh, at least partially in my conversations with other people so um you know this episode is going to be a two-parter, I think. I, I have a little bit of an idea to continue working out that I started last time, uh, last week on the show. And then I'm going to I'm gonna then do a, a, I don't even know what to call it. I'm going to go back and read a tweet that I tweeted two years ago and, and try and deconstruct that. So uh, this is my gift to you. More crap to fill your life with. <laughs> and that's actually surprisingly somewhat of a lead-in to what I'm thinking about here. So as you remember... Um, I found that this this idea of the collective versus the individual was starting to impress itself upon me in a couple different ways. And, you know, I need to define it a little bit more clearly. Like, I, whether I said this or not, I thought it. It was that, you know, there's probably anthropological, sociological um, definitions of the collective. Um, I'm kind of just running roughshod over them probably and, and kind of using it um, in my in my and using the term collective in my own way. I think that when I think about the collective, I think about it's something like when a group of people size, notwithstanding rallies around a shared value system or a shared belief in what is the highest good, you know, obviously organized religion comes to mind right there. Um, but even in non-secular situations, something like um, socialism, you know, where the, although I suppose a lot of people who lived under socialism didn't really believe in that, but it's this idea of uh, all for one sort of, and there's no ownership, there's no agency, the state provides and we, we, we do the work, um, we do the work uh, for the greater good. Although again, a lot of those places, situations where that was the case, you know, Maoist China, Soviet Russia, currently in North Korea, um, a lot of that it's you know the, the state and the, and the leader are are seen as the greatest good you know and so and the, the people the individuation i suppose and the individual agency of each person is is run roughshod over is flattened out in the name of um a singular point of good so again that really didn't help anything but i think organized religion is very useful um cults obviously where a, a group of people again everybody's in agreement about what is about what is right and good and what the mission is you you know and there may even be situations like that um on smaller levels you know 
um, an army brigade or an army platoon or a, you know, a group of soldiers with one singular mission in mind, you know, where there's a hierarchy and a structure of leadership. But I, I think that, um, I still feel like the importance of the individual and the rights of the individual need to, uh, need to be prioritized over the collective. And I've heard, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about how the West fundamentally figured that out, you know, is that the, he talks about the pyramid as being a sort of symbol of that. And I'm not going to recapitulate his ideas because I have no business doing that. But I think about, if you think, if you think about sort of one of the most foundational myth, uh, myths in the West, it is the Judeo-Christian, specifically the, the Christian myth, the Christian story, where you're seeing God represented as a singular point, as a person, right? As Jesus Christ, the son of God. Um, you, you know, so so that's interesting. So there again is that single point, that single, uh, you know, that single sort of personification of what God is. He's he's seen in the individual. But then, of course, um, conversely to what I've been working up to here, uh, worshiping that and the, the church that forms around that would be seen as a sort of collective, right? So if if the rights of the individual and the sovereign individual with agency and ownership and rights, if that is, um, you know, if that is really to be prioritized over the collective, I think that's probably too simple a binary. And it's, you know, when we talk about worshiping Jesus, though, there's a good example in which the collective is getting together and, and rallying around what they believe to be fundamentally right and good. You know, what they fundamentally believe is right and good. And they're in agreement on this. And in some ways, their own personal identi- identity, their individuation is flattened out um, in the name of a higher good. Uh, but again, it's interesting that the higher good here is a, is a singular point, a personification of and so I like this idea of the personification of God in a singular point in a person because I think that that trickles back to the idea that you yourself, you yourself can have a personal relationship with God. You can strive towards the highest ideal um, by becoming fully self-realized and self-developed. So again, maybe when I talk about, you know, is there a happy medium between the collective and the individual? Well, well certainly there is. Certainly there is, and it's something like that. It's something like you you all can be in agreement of what is right and good, but you all individually have to work on uh, understanding it and getting it uh, in a personal way. I do sometimes think that um, that's where Christianity gets somewhat of a bad rap. I don't have a, a great grasp of, of the ins and outs of it, but generally, um, you know, to say that, uh, to, uh, to say that, um, you know, oh, it's this, it's this Bible thumping and it's this, you know, crazy, you know, cult. It's this, it's this group think it's, it's all, it can be all those things. But also my understanding is that one's relationship with, with Jesus Christ is a, is a very, very personal one. You know, it's something that occurs uh, on a, on a one-to-one level. You know, you, I think Arsh Kaira mentioned this verse from the Bible where it says to go and pray quietly uh, in solitude, right? That's, you know, and that's that's ultimately true. I, I think when we're when we're pursuing when we're when we're pursuing what is the highest good to us, whether it's whether it's a relationship with Jesus or, or anything else, we have to do it in solitude. You know, and 
so much of so much of I think what what is wrong or or what seems to be the problem today in our world is is where these what should be solo and personal pursuits are sort of being drawn into collective arenas, and there's of course there's going to be disagreement about how we go about these things, and so then you're going to see conflict. So, you know, uh, this is a very sort of happy birthday. Uh, quote that I heard uh, from an Israeli writer that Devin turned me on to, Sam Vaknin. He says, Western civilization is a death cult that objectifies everything. Western civilization is a death cult that objectifies everything. And we talk about objectifying, we're, we're, we're saying, you know, at least when we're objectifying people, you know, we're not seeing them as, as, as humans, as, as systems that grow, you know, as beings that are in flux, beings that are, as I've said before, uh, huge, un- a universe. One person is a universe. You know, we're not, we're seeing a person, we're, we're boxing them up as a one singular point, one singular object, and we're saying, this is how I can use them. You know, I think, I think the ultimate or the sort of extreme, like on the one end of the spectrum here, the ultimate or the extremist form of this sort of objectification is narcissism, right? That's seeing people, um, seeing people again, as I said, as, as, as objects and as using them for personal gain, really only seeing the world through your own personal, um, lens, really not capable of, of anything other than, uh, manipulating others to, to get to where you want to be, uh, to bend, to, to lie, uh, to hurt, to cheat, to steal, to do whatever. And, and again, there's no, from a narcissistic lens, there's no, there's no real negative connotation on that because you yourself, I mean, it's, it's all you baby. And again, a lot of what I have spoken about, uh, at least on the last episode that we, that I was solo and, and before that, you know, there was this idea of, of my own personal lens of meaning. I, I impose meaning. I decide that life is worth living and I live based on my own values. But you know, the, as I've been saying, the extreme end of that is narcissism where yes, I, I impose meaning and I live however I want. And I really have zero consideration of other people. Right. So we can see then how I think the, how this sort of consideration of the collective and the individual would, would come to start to balance itself. You know, if, if narcissism is the extreme end, you know, that sort of absurdism, that, that passionate absurdism that, that I impose meaning I live how I want, but I still take into account other people. I think that's, I think that's necessarily important. You know, I still contribute to the culture. Maybe that's one way to put it. And again, I, if if then the, the 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 problems of the individual, or I should say, if the rights of the individual, if the sort of um, looking at life, looking at the culture through the lens of the individual, is is to be prioritized over the collective, um, you know, then I I think that I think that obviously a lot of the problems we see in society today can be seen fundamentally as personal problems, right? I mean the problems that exist in the collective, so to speak, are problems that begin on a personal level, right? Uh, mental illness, trauma, addiction. Um, what we're talking about here is problems that lead, um, you know, problems that lead to trying to fill holes in the psyche and in the self with things that are exogenous, things that are external to ourselves, right? And I, I've spoken a little bit about trauma and, and drug addiction on this podcast, um, but what we're seeing here is that there's been a, someone has been compromised physically, they've been abused, and it, you know, it, it affects their, their 
ability to function normally in, in everyday society. Again, it, it probably affects their ability to feel normal personally. And it also on the collective level affects their inability to integrate. And so what we see there then is, is a drug addiction or a substance or a behavioral addiction develop, right? Now that's really, uh, it exists. I mean, I'm guilty of it. Plenty of people are. I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who wasn't using some form of exogenous substance or, or undertaking some kind of behavior because of a physical lack or a mental lack. Right? So these problems that begin on the personal level, like I said, mental illness, trauma, and addiction fundamentally, uh, problems regulating emotions, for instance, these then manifest in the collective as the problems that we're all very familiar with. Um, crime, homelessness, uh, breakdown of the family, breakdown of, of the tribe, breakdown of the society, breakdown of the family. You know, as an aside, I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, in, in Canada for sure, and I think in the United States, you see uh, you know, breakdown of the family that is the, the two parent home, um, ac across racial lines. Uh, I might be speaking out of turn here. I think for sure, African-American families have a higher prevalence of single parent households in the United States. I think probably two indigenous households, uh, in Canada, uh, same thing, a lower instance of, um, single, a uh, uh, lower instance of two parent households. Now, when I present that idea to Will Cardinal on this show, uh, Will Cardinal Maurer on this show about a month and a half ago, he made a good point that, you know, maybe the nuclear family and maybe, maybe this idea of a two parent household, maybe that is not necessarily a great metric, uh, to, to, to rate, uh, how, how, uh, how someone is doing necessarily so i'll say okay sure but then let's say then the problems that begin on the personal level and manifest themselves in the collective such as the familial and societal and cultural breakdowns you can't ignore that so even if the two-parent household isn't a great metric well we're seeing where where people aren't able to integrate where people aren't able to function to have children to raise children even if they want to we're seeing a breakdown of the culture and of the society because of problems that begin on the personal level. Now, you could even argue, I think, that problems like narcissism, uh, sociopathy, trauma, they could also be at the root of the structural causes like structural racism, so-called systemic oppression, right? Now, this is a tough one to parse out because, again, I'm not... I've spoken about structural racism and systemic oppression as it's known on this podcast. I think I have no problem, uh, clearly I have no problem in, in pointing to examples of it, right? But you can't, you can't, you have to be careful, you know, you, you can't defend it, but you could say, well, oftentimes we don't hear about the cause, you know, the cause, uh, the problem broadly is structural, right? So the problem is systemic and structural. We're trying to heal it on a structural and systemic level. Well, I, I don't agree with that in some ways, or I, I mean, I, I'm all for it if you think you're getting somewhere with it, but how about addressing it on a personal level, meaning people that are in places of decision-making, people that are in places of power, we have to understand that they are fundamentally narcissistic, sociopathic, and probably themselves traumatized, or probably just broadly evil, or, or, you know, they're corrupted in some other way, right? They're, they're being um, lobbied, you know, money corrupts, of course, you know, they're, they're weak fundamentally, they're, they're people of low integrity uh, in these cases. So if we can, you know, I got into a, not an argument at all, but a, a discussion a while back on Instagram with, with somebody who, who was a guest on this show, and hopefully she'll come back on. And, you know, she was, she was talking about the way in which, uh, the way in which a sexual encounter 
is is problematized in culturally in the West at least as as the man doing the man the man taking the man being the hero here we're we're we're, we're condemning a man or not condemning we're commending I should say a man uh, for for his sexual conquest and on the flip side of that we're condemning a woman for having been conquested sexually you know and i think that's again that's that's a pretty hard and black and white binary but i think there's a lot of truth to it but what i said to her was you know we have to understand that uh whether or not a man admits it or understands it consciously there is a lot a lot a lot of um emotional um emotional and physical and physiological um toll and tax that a sexual uh interaction can take on a man as well and i told her i just wanted to nuance that discussion you know i think that i and so we got going back and forth but again she was coming at it with with this lens uh, a feminist lens a progressive lens saying well no the women are always the victim in this case that's how our society's laid out i said not disputing that that's the case a lot of the time but you can say that while at the same time also say that you know what sex and the hookup culture and all that takes a toll on men as well. Point being, point being, we need to nuance the discussion. And what I said was, rather, if we continue to war across these tribal lines, you know, men are this, women are that, cis is that, trans is that, black is that, white is that, and it's it's this versus, it's this tribal thing. I, I think we're if you if you if you discuss and you war along tribal lines, then you're going to have tribal outcomes. You know, whereas if we see each other as as all as human beings, you know, without again without flattening or forgetting that each of us is unique and each of us has uh, individual and group based characteristics that are important to us. You know, what we have to see each other as as, as human beings for one, but also as the same thing fundamentally, life and consciousness that came from God knows where exists in all of us. And, you know, it's easy for me to look at someone and see another person, but what if I looked at another person and actually just saw more of what I am? And they are, I am to them more of what they are. We are all fundamentally the same, right? Like I was watching a bee uh, pollinate a flower and I thought, well, why does my mind see that bee and see that flower separate from me. I mean, I'm alive. The bee is alive. The flower is alive. We're all fundamentally the same thing. The same force exists within us. And I think it's not out of the question to say that when I die, that force doesn't, it, it leaves my physical body, but what? Right? What, I mean, what was it? Where did it come from? It's, it exists in you. It exists in this plant that I'm looking at right now. It exists at these kids that I see playing in the field. Uh, they're full of it. <laughs> I'm full of it too, but I'm full of something else. But I guess my point is that so much of this hard binary, even this binary that I started the episode with, the collective, the individual, black, white, cis, trans, hetero, homo, whatever, whatever. I mean, we, we have to see things as humans in categorical ways to make sense of our world. But if we see things categorically, then we see things categorically. Whereas if we, if we felt the love and the life force that permeates the universe, I think, I think maybe we'd be on, on, on a better path here. You know, we'd be, um, you, you know, we'd be, we'd be on our way to reimagining what human is. You know, I think you look, you look everywhere. I mean, uh, I've watched these magpies in my backyard kill a family of robins last 
uh, last month. And now I see this family of robins has re-nested and relayed eggs. And there's four beautiful little babies in there. And I think, well, maybe these four have a shot, you know. But, uh, I mean, I bring that up because I really do think that nature on some level is is bloodshed, is violence, is beings staking out their territory because again that seems to be what goes part and parcel with being alive is like well we have to set boundaries we have to set definitions and we have to defend those because if we don't and we lose track of what i am and where i can be um you know i think that's i think that's just that's how it works on on a sort of less you know on on a simple or i guess animalistic level and i've gone completely off the fucking page here but i hope some of this is making sense i think it I mean, I don't know. (laughs) A big part of what we see in our society today, and I can't take a lot of credit from this, uh, Sam Vaknin, he's an Israeli writer that that Devin has turned me on to. And some of these ideas are ideas that Devin sent me. So I'll give him full credit on Sunday when we do the Mooncast, and hopefully he can help me make sense of some of this stuff. But um, we talk about addiction or, you know, of any kind, being a sort of object, an exogenous object being used to fill a gap in the, in the self, in the, in the person, in the psyche. Well, the consumption of objects and objectification of people broadly is very much what defines Western culture, I think. It's, there's a narcissism here where I can only see things as being external to me and of use to me. Right, so the far end of this spectrum is this sort of narcissistic, objectifying um, behavior. And again, Vakten, Sam Vakten talks about the way capitalism in the Industrial Revolution certainly began to lead to that and prototypical forms of capitalism, you know, mercantilism, I guess, which developed in the 14th, 15th centuries. Again, I'm, I'm trying to remember what he was saying here. Um, that was the beginning of the process of objectifying people, right? I mean, I think you have to, at least to some degree, uh, accept the Marxist critique that um, capitalism functions to divorce workers from the products of their labor, right? You know, you can easily think about back in the day on a tribal situation, even before the agricultural revolution or during agricultural times where you were responsible kind of for yourself, whatever you could produce for yourself and that was enough or if you could produce a little bit of a surplus for the tribe and then as the tribe got bigger there was you know sort of the cottage industries or the people fell into roles and there was trading again is my lack of understanding of history any more apparent than it is right now but i'm working on something theoretical but then when we go into the industrial revolution here now we're seeing the production of things at scale uh, using people's labor uh using people's labor uh to produce something that was not for them and was not even for their family and was not even necessarily for uh, anybody like them in their class. You know, it was, it was people who own the means of production exploiting them. And I don't, again, I, I am still in favor of capitalism because I think a lot of the advances and a lot of lives have been saved through it. But I mean, necessarily the, the evils uh, that are, that sort of occur uh, that sort of coincide with capitalism can't be, can't be uh, forgotten. You know, so if we see the consumption of, of objects and the objectification of people, right, uh, through capitalism, through narcissism, 
on the far end of that spectrum, you have that sort of seeing people not as a, not as being like me, but as being something else, something that I can use. You know, they're not imbued with the same life force that I am. You know, I think on the, on the opposite end of that spectrum would be authoritarian socialism. And now I have to bridge that gap that I've laid out for myself. You know, because, and maybe, maybe, maybe it's not so much a spectrum as it is like a circle or a bell curve, right? Because if on the far end of that spectrum, we have um, authoritarian socialism, uh, like we do in North Korea, and just let me pause and, and make no bones about it. Socialism, when fully realized, kills people. You know, socialism fully realized when it, it ultimately does the same thing as narcissistic objectification. It uses people. I'm working my way through an interview uh, Joe Rogan podcast with Yeonmi Park. Uh, she's a North Korean woman. She escaped North Korea over 10 years ago and she's written a book and she's talking about it. I'm not going to recapitulate it for my own gain, but it, you need to listen to uh, She's made a few podcast appearances, so pick one that you like and listen to this because what's going on there is uh, it's it's worse than even I had imagined. You know, organ harvesting, uh, you know, concentration camps, prison camps, uh, Nobody owns anything there, right? Nobody, uh, there's no agency. Everything is decided for you. She says the only thing a North Korean individual can decide to do is breathe. They have to provide one ton of human feces to the government every year. Each family does so that they can fertilize the fields at the collective farms. And of course, all that that is farmed is given to the elite. Okay, so... I bring this up because, and it sort of, it sort of struck me as, as something like, okay, so this is this is an example where the collective is privileged as being more important than the individual, at least ideologically. When you know, if you were to look at it, obviously there's still an elite class, a leadership class, and then a whole underclass of of oppressed people. I mean, she, Yanmi Park says the whole country is a concentration camp. Okay, this is a. This is an in, this is an instance where the collective is 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 uplifted over the individual, right? Like there's no word for murder, there's no word for disappearing in North Korea. People people die and it really doesn't matter. What all that matters is that all the collective effort goes into producing for the great leader, the dear leader and the elite class. Now it's interesting that this is a secular society, uh, but it's still totally dogmatic. Now, as I understand it, the, the sort of founding myth of North Korea as told to the people really begins in about 1948, right? Like Kim Il-sung, he's, um, he's seen as being a god in a sense, and, and he gave his son, I could be getting the details wrong here, but um, they, they hold these people up as being god, as being the creators. There's nothing before the founding of North Korea as we know it now. This is a secular society functioning ultimately um, as a religious society. So I, th I think there's interesting parallels here that, you know, at the extreme end of one spectrum, there's this me, 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 objectifying everything else, narcissistic power and use of others to suit my ends, you know. And at the, at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we could see something like this authoritarian socialism where everybody is subverted the collective is sub is the collective is privileged and yet 
Spectrum isn't the right word because whereas if it's just me and narcissistic objectification of everything of the world, it all points to a singular point of reference, me. And on the other end of the spectrum, you're seeing you're seeing this collective, you know, the collective is everything. And it's so interesting that the, where, the, where the collective is, as it is in North Korea, organ harvesting, labor, predominantly those, those two things, organ harvesting and labor, like enforced labor, and essentially using the people as fuel to run the country, you know, it all still points to a singular point of reference here, to the, to the leader of the state. Right and to the nation generally as it's represented by the leader. So then what I'm thinking about here, what, what I have to interject here is if I've, I've done a pretty poor job of laying that out, but I'm thinking about this idea of cultural absurdism. This is an idea I had a few days after I did the podcast, cultural absurdism. Now, what I'm talking about here is that Clearly, when we're faced with the reality of, of the way things are in North Korea, where the individual rights have been stamped out and people are essentially used as literal fodder to keep the engines churning. Again, you can look at the details of all this. You know, if the, the individual rights and individual dignity are not privileged, there's no, there's no, there's no restaurants, obviously. There's no stores. There's no, there's no way to get food. There's no real way to like have any sort of fashion there's no any any of these markers of individuality be it basic needs or or just wants like toward a culture towards a, a you know a thriving sort of nuanced intersectional culture you know where people have an identity and they're putting it up against other identities and where none of that is you know it's all flat how you get your hair cut is is decided for you in north korea so when we're faced with this knowledge a certain sense of absurdism hits us again, right? Remember, absurdism properly, as defined by Albert Camus, is that uh, the world, the universe, is chaos. The, the cosmos is infinite and meaningless. And here is my little pea brain attempting to impose some meaning on it. Well, it's impossible. There is no rational meaning to any of it. And so I have to decide, okay, is life worth living? Yes. Can I impose meaning on it in some way? Yes. And can I live to the fullest? Yes. So when we're, when, we're, when we're faced with that existential dread of knowing that on this earth, there's a place where the individual is not privileged. On this earth, there's a system that takes people, literally takes their organs from them. You know, gives them nothing. Uses their shit to fertilize the fields and then doesn't give them at least even a scrap of the food. You know, a place where they have to burn their own hair to stay warm in the winter. When we hear things like this, and conversely, when we're faced within the West, this, this place of objectification where, you know, identities are flattened on social media. What's that show, Love Island, that someone in my house is watching? I can't believe it. You know, Disney, pornography, all these things, all these things that take human individuation and flatten them and make them consumable and make me see them as objects. Simple binary narratives of right and wrong, evil and good. 
when we're faced with with that on on polar on the polar ends narcissistic consumption and objectification of people and as i may as i mentioned you know a narcissistic uh, sociopathic evil corrupt uh, on a personal level and then using the subverting individuation right so there's this extreme individuation at one end where I can consume whatever I like and I can see things however I want and everything external to me is just feeding into me. And then there's on the opposite spectrum, for instance, in North Korea or in a cult or, or in fundamentalist religion where everything is flattened and subverted and they still all point to the singular point of reference, either me or, or God or me or the external God. And it, it completely wipes away the notion of, of God within the self that personal relationship and that that striving for self-expression. When we're faced with that, the feeling of absurd, absurdism certainly has to face us. And we're, we're thinking, well, at least if I can understand that and I'm not partaking in it, then what can I do? You still have to make the fundamental claim that life is worth living, that you can then at least be aware and you can see all these objective ideas as objective ideas and all these objects as being objects and for God's sake, if they're people, see them as people. You know, celebrities who appear to be on top of things, who are in, enjoying their life, whatever it may be, ob- obtaining some sort of sexiness and high-value lifestyle, well, they're still being commodified and flattened for your consumption. I, I have to pity them in some ways. I even think that creating content in some ways isn't enough anymore, right? Because all the content, like this podcast, it gets flattened out and four people listen to it and, you know, they consume it as an objective object and that's exactly what it is. An external object, pardon me. So I I think we, we need to strike a balance between the collective and the individual. If we understand what the polar opposites are, they're fundamentally evil, right? Fundamentally using and consuming people. We have to take that singular point of reference, whether it's the narcissistic sociopath who consumes people in the West, or even the narcissistic person, the less self-actualized person, the person who sees everything as an ex- not only as an external object to them, but then consumes that external object and sees it only in relation to themselves. Or you have killer socialism. We have to strike a balance, and it's somewhere in the middle of that bell curve. You know, where <laughs> I'm not going to go into the bell curve thing again, but whereas the answer in the first bell curve that I spoke about was on the far ends, this seems to point to me the opposite, where the answer is in the middle of the bell curve. And to me, I really believe that society has just basically gotten too big to be sustainable, uh, too big to be sustainable in a lot of ways, but on a spiritual level, you know? This is not, we are not living in a uh, fashion or in a, in a configuration that benefits the individual. And we're certainly then not benefiting in a way that living in a way that benefits the collective either. You know? Society has gotten to the point where it's too big to be sustainable on a spiritual level. So, if we were, if we, you know, 
obviously that's not going to change. I mean, we're only getting bigger. And unless we somehow get to a place where we're actually reimagining humanism, reimagining what it is to be human, uh, then I don't, I don't foresee that changing. And it'll be something like climate change or nuclear war that ultimately takes us out, hopefully not in my lifetime, uh, selfishly, but certainly it can't be too far away. But if you can begin to build, and this is where I'm going with it, and I need to start talking to people about this idea generally. If you can begin to start building a tribe, a small group, around the idea, so it's a collective fundamentally, right? And that you all have to share some understanding and some um, some agreeance about what is important. But, you know, you think about it, even in your family, uh, your nuclear family, or, you know, if you're married and you have kids, or you, you, you think back, or you, or you currently still live with your parents, or your family broadly, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, generational, or, or if family to you is a group of close friends, you know, there's, there are shared values, but there's, there's always going to be disagreement or, or a, a different prioritizing within that unit. You know, I think if you can, within that group, and this is what I maybe would strive to do. And again, I, I know I'm saying if you, if you, but really, I mean, if I, if I, I'm not expecting anybody to do anything with any of this. I don't know how you possibly could, um, Build, uh, what I want to do is try and build a tribe or at least find people where I can, where we can agree that I'm the one, I'm the source of meaning in my life, right? So it's, it's like a sort of absurdist, absurdist approach to tribalism. You know, I'm the, I'm the locus of meaning. I'm the source of meaning for me in the world. And yet Knowing that, I still want to be in this tribe, right? So whereas whereas Camus' absurdism proper talks about, I understand that things are completely irrational and without meaning. I still decide that life is worth living. Well, what I'm what I'm proposing here is saying, the world as we know it is has two polar opposites: complete narcissistic consumption on one hand, or on the other hand, the complete subversion of the individual and the, the use of the masses to fuel ultimately evil, <laughs> evil power structures, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, the, the way it could go. And it's interesting because on some sense, they're, 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 evil is the same, but I'm coming to it. I'm coming to it two different ways on the level of the individual, the consumer, the narcissist, the objectifier. And then on a level where that same sort of evil is being used to undergird or to sort of to sort of flatten out individuation. Knowing that, we then have to say, well, if that's what humanity is capable of, is life still worth living? You say yes, or I say yes. I mean, I'm still alive. I'm still blabbing away. It's my birthday and it's 30 degrees out and sunny and I'm inside talking about things that I barely understand. Obviously, life is worth living. So in this tribal situation, this small group, family, however you want to look at it, a sustainable thing because you can go to each member and say, listen, the world is fucking crazy. It's irrational, it's chaos, and there's evil on all sides. But I still believe life is worth living and I still want to be a part of this group with you. You know, uh, given that everything is crazy and irrational, 
I have to derive some form of meaning from something. And I'm saying that it, it exists within me because I know that life is worth living, but also being in this group, this small tribe and building this tribe together. That's what's important to me. That to me is maybe where collectivism can start to come in. You know, I still think about what Faisal said a few, like a month ago when we talked, he said, you know, the problems of the individual can be solved by the collective. And to me, I, I, I thought that might very well be possible, Faisal. And I think this is where it starts. It starts still on the level of the individual, but acknowledging that on the outer ends of what is possible, it is unsustainable, it is evil, and it will literally eat you up. But bringing it closer to home, to the tribe, we can all share that understanding and that knowledge of, of you know, I have the image of like a small group of people huddled uh, in a tent or in a hut or in a house um, floating on an iceberg or surrounded by a forest or surrounded by a forest fire might be a more timely or floating through space, you know. There's nothing grand and there's nothing meaning meaning and grandiosity and, and glory don't come from some external external uh, sky full of stars or or forest or or ocean. The meaning starts within and I guess if you can open up your heart and you can build a tribe of people who who understand this then, then maybe that might be of, of some use. So these are some of the ideas, like a a cultural absurdism or a tribal absurdism, you know, that I might start taking to people uh, as we go forward with the podcast. So I'm going to pause now and I'm going to dig up this tweet from two years ago and I'm going to talk a little bit about that and then I'm going to get on with enjoying my birthday. I tweeted this on my birthday two years ago when I turned 30. You can now do the math. I'm 32 years old today. I got to say, I love Twitter, man. Like Twitter has been my journey into a lot of self-understanding, a lot of, I guess what you might call red pill. Like if you scroll my Twitter timeline, it's a bit of an echo chamber of like slightly conservative, um, you know, slightly conservative, I would say slightly red pill uh, thinking. Uh, but you know, people use Twitter in a way that I think they just do it to be polarizing. They do it to get engagement. I mean, that's why you have to, um, that's why you have to be very cautious of how you use all media, not just social media. Understand that it is filtered and it is curated and it is created to, for a uh, means to an end. I mean, it's not for you really. I mean, it's, it's created to be consumed. It's not created for the user necessarily. It's, cons- it's created to be consumed. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of guys on Twitter. One of them, uh, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. Um, and there's a, there's a whole, I mean, he's incredible as far as fitness, diet, um, and just, you know, mindset. And yeah, you might look at that and, and a lot of it might, you, you might find hard to, con- hard to imagine, right? Like, especially the way in which himself and other people in that corner of Twitter talk about male female relations and, and all that sort of thing like it's very much in some ways anti-feminist but it's not anti-woman but again this is a road that I don't want to go down uh, leave it I'll leave it at saying that I, I love Twitter as a medium I don't get a lot of engagement or use out of it as a as a um, as a producer so to speak but as a consumer I found it very rewarding but you have to be very open and honest about everything you take in right so um, even if there's a sort of, I guess, anti-ideological um, 
red pill um, philosophy that sort of runs through a lot of my Twitter followers. I found it. I found it useful because I found it useful because it at least got me thinking about what the world could be. Instead of seeing it through one lens, I sort of started to see it through a more broad lens, and then kind of filtered it back to to being a more critical thinker. I guess so. That would be my one thing I say about Twitter is that it's great as a consumer for me, uh, but I wouldn't. <laughs> you got to be careful with all media. Um, okay, so this tweet, this, I wrote this tweet two years ago to this day. I said, never thought I'd be pompous enough to do this, and few people will see it anyway. But as I've just turned 30, here's 30 thoughts that have improved my mindset. So, you know, that's why Twitter's great, because you can just blab shit about yourself. And, and if people, and it's like this podcast, really, if people find it useful, then then that's great. And, you know, I don't know how many people saw this tweet. It's got three likes in two years. That's hilarious. Uh, 564 impressions and 52 engagements. So, I mean, that's baby numbers, really, but it really doesn't matter because I I took the time to get 30 thoughts out of my head. Um, Okay. I'm going to go through them one by one, talk a little bit about them. Maybe you find it useful. All right. In, In no particular order, I don't think. Number one, meaning is greater than happiness. I suppose that's a thought that occurred to me a few years ago when, you know, again, it goes back to what we we're talking about with this objectification of people and this narcissistic consumption of, of media and ideas through the personal lens. It's like, you know, you're always trying to fill the holes, I guess, and, and feel good, but really the search for happiness, you know, the pursuit of happiness for me personally is not the goal here. For me, I want to pursue things that are, that are important to me. And, you know, I'm creating meaning for myself in this world. I'm pursuing that. And the happiness for me strives from pursuing things that are meaningful, not vice versa. Number two, take time to watch the sky and note changes as the seasons pass. This, I think, is something like mindfulness and being aware of of your life passing and time passing and the, the sort of the finite nature of your life, but also the circular nature of life. You know, I, I get a great joy every morning of, of looking at the sky and, and, and noticing the way in which, you know, as, as spring comes and summer comes, the sky is just so blue and so vibrant, you know, and the night sky just never really gets black. And then conversely, <laughs> in the dead of a northern winter, the blackness of that sky and the, the way the different, the way the cloud formations change as the, as the years, as the year goes on, it's, um, it's something like a grounding and it's something like getting in touch with the forces of this world that are much, uh, much greater than us and, and probably more eternal than us for sure. Number three, meditate. Somehow, some way, however works for you. I guess I don't necessarily meditate in the traditional sense of sitting and being quiet, but I don't, I'm, there's plenty of sources on how meditation works, but I I think when I do get to that meditative state, whether it's playing drums or maybe even exercising or walking, writing, it's, it's a place where you're, you're not, I guess I would tie it to the, to the idea of temporal stability. And it's very much not living in the past or the future, but but being very much in the present and engaged with what you're doing. Breathing is important here. Uh, a connection between the the mental and the physical, I think, is ultimately what it is. And how long can you hold that before you break and start living in another tense? Number four, write something every single day. I've said enough about that. I think keeping a journal is the one thing that has improved my life, uh, potentially stopped me from killing myself. (laughs) I mean that. Um, 
you know, writing, writing is how you make sense of the chaos in your mind. And it is possible, you know, whereas the absurdist feeling that the world is irrational and chaos is rational, uh, sorry, that the world is irrational, that it's chaos, that there's no meaning. I mean, the same could be said about the mind. There's a lot of irrationality in the mind and a lack of meaning in a lot of what we do. Speaking of things that occur on the emotional level, but writing is the one thing, you know, not the one thing, but writing is one thing that works for me. Clearly better than speaking. If you're listening to this episode still, you understand that. Writing is the one thing that I can do personally that helps to impose meaning on my thoughts and helps me parse out what is an emotional attachment, what is something that happened for whatever reason, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, writing allows you to impose meaning on the chaos of the mind. Number five, lift weights. That's all I'll say, lift weights. If you know, you know. Number six, walk a little every day and a lot a couple times a month. Uh, There's a lot of science behind that. Uh, I'm not going to go into it. I would say getting up in the morning, and if you can, getting moving for 15 minutes, getting that sunlight uh, every day, seeing the sun up early, walking around, and or if it's at the end of the day after dinner, seeing the sun low and going down really does wonders for the sleep, for the digestion, for the mind. It's a great time to solve problems, or it's a great time to meditate and just think about nothing. Um, walk a lot a couple times a month. That's something I've sadly gotten away from but uh, at the time of writing this I used to go for maybe once a month I go for like a 20-30 kilometer walk around the city boy you want to clean your mind out and and find out what's important to you walk 30 kilometers fast periodically I actually fast every day technically um intermittent fasting I think is something that maybe gets it's kind of again it's it's put into a box and then given to you as a object you can consume and decide if you like it does it work for you i think i think it does work for me um really i i just i couldn't imagine living any other way for me fasting means i stop eating three hours before i go to sleep i sleep eight hours i wake up i don't eat for about another eight hours another five six seven eight hours you get between 16 and 20 hours of of time where you're not just randomly consuming and cramming your face and then there's an eight hour window where you can you got to be reasonable but you do got to have a little bit of leeway. <laughs> uh, it's, as I understand, it's really good for the mind, you know, because when the digestion is a huge tax and a huge toll on the body's, you know, metabolism on its structures, on its processes. So if you're not constantly digesting, then the brain has time to repair itself. The body has time to do other things. I'm obviously not a doctor. Um, this is not medical advice. I would say if you're looking to improve you're getting better physical shape, consider fasting and, and do the research on it and, and see if it's right for you. Number eight, accept that you will grow to be very different from most of your friends. This is something that I, I've heard it said and I, I experienced it myself around the age of 30. You know, you really start to see the differences show in people and you see, you see what people uh, make important to themselves and, and how that manifests in their life. You know, uh, when you're younger, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're definitely more in a tri- There's a lot more of a tribal setting. You know, there's those close friends, those, those homies or those people you went to school with or whatever. And again, it's very much like that collective thing where you're sort of the, 
the identity of the individual is flattened slightly and it's the good of the collective. Are you going to be there tonight? Are you coming out with us tonight? What the fuck you mean? You're not, you know, oh, you're ditching the boys to go hang out with your girlfriend, that sort of thing. Yeah, I haven't heard that in a while, right? But what I'm getting at here is that personal individual identity comes to really start to be emboldened around 30. And and the truth is you may be hanging around with people who you're doing something like trauma bonding or you're, or you're sharing beliefs and ideals that you personally are going to grow out of and and if they don't or they do or they go another way your friendship was not necessarily built on a bond or a, a you know a shared individual connection but on 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 value you know or on on external ideas so you know i've seen it i've had a i've been pretty privileged that a lot of the friends i i had when i was younger i still have them today uh but you know we spend less time together generally i think we still keep in touch and i still have great times with them but i think you have to understand that you grow to be your own person and and the reference the group frame uh is is less of a less of a uh meaning making structure in my life and and it's become more of the individual personal um value what i value and what i prioritize and i I, you know it's easy to look at my friends when we do get together and go oh that's what you think huh but you don't have to judge them or place a moral Uh, you know a moral um judgment on them but you just understand that they are them and you are you and you and that that separation although (laughs) again you you may still choose to love them right because we're all imbued with that that substance that that stuff of life um but just accept that you will grow to be different from your friends period number nine masturbate as little as possible and that links very nicely to number 10 consider the effects of pornography on your psyche consider ceasing your consumption of it masturbate as little as possible consider ceasing your consumption of pornography this is something that i'm 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 gearing up to talk a lot more about on the show if i could find the the right partner i don't necessarily think you want to hear me talk about my experience with pornography i can't imagine <laughs> i think as a phenomena, it might be interesting, but as a personal journal or story, it's really not. It's kind of disgusting and sad. But I really do believe that pornography is one of the biggest evils in, in our culture. I don't see a lot of use for it. Um, well, <laughs> maybe on some level I do, but I, on an intellectual level, I think I believe that it's wrong. I believe that it victimizes uh, a lot of people, and I believe that it has ruined in some ways um, our culture. Uh, I believe that it contributes to a sort of lack of respect across the sexes, between the sexes. And I don't have too much more to say about it other than to really urge you if, you know, if you're looking for a way to improve your sex life, to improve the way you feel, your mood, hormonally, um, stop jerking off and stop participating in sex as a, as a, um, as a viewer, you know, as a consumer. Consuming other people having sex to me seems problematic and it, it didn't then when I was younger and it sure does now. And it's, 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 it's not the way it's meant to be. I don't believe. Although who am I to say? Number 11, sleep as much as you can. And as regularly as you can, it is the single most important thing you do next to breathing. I think it's all right there. I mean, sleep begets sleep. If you can get your sleep figured out, you're going to sleep very well. Um, a couple of things that I, like I say, I like to stop eating about three hours before, uh, I go to bed. Uh, I like to maybe if I can drink a cup of chamomile tea before bed. 
Uh, get a walk in before bed. You know, don't overhydrate after dinner. Um, magnesium, magnesium is like a miracle mineral, man. Get it in you. Um, exercise, you know, really sort of, if you can start, start weaning yourself off the blue light, you know, from the devices by about eight, nine or whatever, you know, before you go to bed, calm down the mind before you go to bed. Um, sleep is it, man. You lose out on sleep. You're going to start losing in life generally. This is ironic. Number 12, don't preach (laughs) as he sits in front of a microphone for an hour. Give advice sparingly. Answer questions instead. Just because you understand an idea doesn't mean it's yours to give out freely. I think this stems from some some stuff that happened to me in my my early 20s where I just, you know, I got into a place of thinking that I knew shit and I would give people advice. You know, they'd come to me with a problem and I would give them, I would say, well, here's what you should do. I think that's wrong. You know, I think fundamentally all advice is bad advice because it comes from a, it comes from an internal place. I think it's better if you can, again, don't preach, don't tell people how to live their life. Don't impose moral judgment on them. I try to not anyway, uh, give advice sparingly, answer questions instead, you know, let, let, if someone comes to you with a problem, you should be honored, but you should also be very, in some senses, alert at that point. Okay. Because it's not your problem. You have to, I guess, be very aware and very alert of how they're coming to you with this problem and then see if you can't just, I, I would say, ask and answer questions about it rather than give them a path of, of action. And if somebody comes to you with a problem and you think of something you heard, well, that doesn't mean that that thing you heard is really of any use. And it's not yours because you didn't necessarily think of it. So I guess one thing that I would caution myself to do going forward is if someone comes to you with a problem, try and get to it from a different rhetorical level, meaning ask questions, dig in on what the problem actually is rather than the solution. Number 13, talk to your anxieties like they're your children. In some ways they are. Be stern, but be soothing. They need to leave home someday. I, I developed anxiety uh, later in life, I would say. I, I used to have more depression and had no time to be anxious. But then once I found a way to cure my depression, I found that I had time to be anxious. Anxiety, for one thing, loves when it wins. You know, it loves if it tells you to do or not do something and you don't do or do something. It grows bigger and stronger and more emboldened. But you have to realize that you have created your anxiety, whether consciously or not. This is of your making, you birthed it, you can kill it. Talk to your anxiety like it's another person. This is some advice that I got from my my counselor. And basically what he, he said was, um, talk to it like it's another person. You know, if, if anxiety is telling you to, to, oh, don't go to that party. Don't go to that party, man. Yeah, you don't you don't want to go to that party, man. People are there, gonna be, oh, gonna be people talking. You know, people are going to be asking you how you're doing and you're going to have to, you know, you have to tell them, oh my God, I this and that, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you don't want me to go to the party. I am going to go to the party. I thank you for bringing up the notion that I maybe shouldn't go to the party, but I'm going to go to the party. Because if you can then soothe that anxiety, because I think a lot of people, or me personally, again, doing my best here to keep this to a personal frame of reference, but in in my sense, I allowed the anxiety to win and just did or didn't do the things that it did or didn't want me to do. But if, if you say to it, ah, oh, you're right. 
I might, I might go to that party and it might not be any fun. I might get into a conversation with somebody about some shit that I don't care about. Oh yeah, I'm going to spend a bunch of money on liquor. Oh, I got to drive out there. I'm going to take cab home. And then, oh man, yeah, I might try and talk to a girl and then it might go poorly for me because I don't know how to talk to women or whatever. Yeah, that's all very possible because in some ways anxiety is, is you seeking to protect yourself. But if you reason with it, tell it, yep, you're right. You're right. But I'm not going to listen to you. I think that's the best way to deal with anxiety that I've found. I have a big, big time anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder with checking if the door is locked. And if I've turned all the burners off on the stove. So honestly, when that happens, breathe, unclench, loosen yourself up. The door is locked. Thank you for asking. All the burners on the stove are off. Thank you for asking. I have to go to work now. Number 14, keep your home clean and ordered by doing a little bit each and every day. That's a piece of wisdom that I actually learned from uh, Mr. Ron Hawerko. Because <laughs> I, I used to make fun of my friends when I lived at home. I'd say, geez, you guys, you guys, you guys act like owning a house is a full-time job. And then I got into a situation where I now, I'm not, I don't own a house, I'm renting a house. It's a full-time fucking job to keep the thing clean. Now, if I had to keep it maintained, I probably wouldn't have a life at all. But what Ron said was, do a little bit each day. And I could only pass that advice on, you know, keep your house clean and ordered and maintained just by doing one or two things every day. Remember that time I said, don't preach. (laughs) 15, breathe as deeply as possible, at least once every few minutes. That's a good cure for anxiety as well. Let's do it together. Number 16, stretch in the morning, stretch in the afternoon, stretch at night. Pretty straightforward. Stretch in the morning, stretch in the afternoon, and stretch at night. You know, we hold a lot of, we hold a lot of emotional and physical, emotional, psychological pain in our physical body and stretching and breathing are a great way to work those out, I've found. Visit a body of water as often as possible. That's just, that's just good for the psyche and the soul. That's just a personal thing. I like to go down to the river, obviously. If you listen to this show for any amount of time, visit a body of water as regularly or as often as possible. Number 18, walk in nature regularly. I think there's a lot to be said for getting out in nature, fresh air, sunshine, green vegetation, and even in the winter. I mean, I don't know how I could ever live my life without being in nature. I think that's fundamentally important part of being human. Same thing. Number 19, sunbathe. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of maybe a lot made about our relation to the sun. Obviously it can, it can burn you. You can get skin cancer if you spend too much time in the sun. I almost feel like, and again, I'm not a doctor. This is not a medical advice. Don't listen to me. Don't do anything with your body that you don't research or talk to somebody professional about it. But I would say that sunbathing is a great way to improve your mood um, to improve your complexion, uh, to just improve your day. If you can get out in the sun, got to do it. Number 20, restrict consumption of processed foods as much as possible. Uh, I'm not always great at this, but I, I really do believe as an ideal that you sh- that whole foods is all you need. You know, foods with one ingredient. Uh, vegetable oil, soybean oil, that sort of thing. That's, that's the devil. That's about as bad as pornography. 
uh, processed sugar, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm not a, again, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a doctor. You can do whatever you want, but I would, I would really say if you're looking to improve your mind, your body, really consider what you're putting into it, uh, through your mouth. Treat yourself from time to time, not necessarily with food. I remember seeing one time it was like, don't always treat yourself with food. What are you, a dog? Is like, you know, a lot of mental illness and anxiety, at least in my life, is tied up with my my relationship to food. Um, but it's also important, on the other hand, I would say, to honor and treat yourself with dignity and say, look, you accomplished something. You need to be able to rest on your laurels and enjoy that. I just don't necessarily think a donut is the best way to do it. Number 22, note your accomplishments and your failures. I think that sort of ties to what I just said. It's like, be very aware um, of of what you accomplished and if you succeeded. I mean, you have to, you have to. I mean, I know there's a sort of hustle and grind culture um, in the West and that we see where it's like, uh, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't, you know, just keep going. Uh, but I think it is important to take time in your journal or wherever in your mind to just note the fact that you succeeded and you did what you set out to do. Conversely, have to note your failures because failures are, are probably more important in, in your in your in your quest for success than than your accomplishments. Where you failed is uh, well, where you failed needs to be deeply analyzed. Number 23, do not, for any real reason, allow someone else to tell you what to think or say. I think this is fundamentally somewhere where I I fail sometimes, for sure. Um, but it goes back to this, this, this idea of deciding that my life is worth living and that I impose meaning in what I, what I do is I, I live my life to the fullest when I can. Obviously, that's an ideal as well. But, you know, don't get caught up parroting ideas don't and more importantly don't allow someone to inflict upon you um what it is that you think or say this is not really anything i've ever really run into in my life i don't think i mean who knows i mean i might get to a place where i'm i'm in a position of leadership and i i'm being instructed on how to speak to people i I don't know It, it doesn't seem like a recipe for success i guess if you're saying things that you didn't truly generate from within Number 24, practice some kind of art or craft, however badly. I think that's really important. And I think that goes towards our pursuit of God, our pursuit of living in God and self, self-actualization and, and becoming who you could be. You have to, or I have to, or I personally see it as being very important um, to, to, to practice my arts and crafts, <laughs> you know, photography, videography, video editing, uh, guitar, singing, drumming. Those are the things that I like to to do. I'm not very good at some of those things for sure, Uh, but you have to do them. You know, a lot of people say, well, I can't dance. I can't paint. I can't sing. Bullshit. You can. Now you might not be able to do it in a way that someone's going to put a large amount of value on it and pay you to do it. But if you don't do it, period, because you think you can't do it, there's a real problem there. I think so much of being human is expression, is that striving towards infinity, is that striving, uh, striving to create something that outlives us or something that's ex- something that is me, external to me, foisted out on the world. Uh, if you're not doing that, or when I'm not doing that, I really get into a bad way. I think that, again, if you're looking to improve on any aspect of your life, consider uh, practicing some kind of art or craft. Could be building birdhouses, could be building popsicle stick furniture. You know, 
doesn't matter. Pick up a camera, you know. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you can shoot, you can write a script, you can shoot video, and you can edit video, and you can post video on the internet, all from that supercomputer in your hands. So don't tell me that you're not a, a video producer if you want to be, because you can be. You're not going to make Christopher Nolan IMAX quality movies, obviously, yet, but where will you start? Number 25. Understand that most folks act negatively as a result of some fear or neuroses. Don't take it personally. I think that's something that uh, Miroslava Yunyat talked about on the podcast a few months ago. It's this idea of, of projection, you know. And it, it really is freeing to, to, to live your life knowing that if, if someone inflicts some kind of pain on you or they act out on you or they say things about you, you're really just filling a place in their field of vision, right? And so much of it is coming from an internal place of pain, of hatred, of whatever. They've been traumatized. They're missing. They're lacking. They had a bad day. It's really what any... Because remember, if you're inflicting an imposing meaning on the world and that's all it is, what someone else says about you is completely nil. It means nothing. It's moot. It's, imp- it's hard to remember that sometimes because sometimes people will make a very personal attack on you. Uh, but it's important to know that really they can say it all they want doesn't make it true. Number 26, complete all tasks to the best of your ability. This is something that my grandfather taught my father and my father taught me. I remember very clearly I took the kitchen, I took the garbage out of the kitchen, brought it outside, opened the lid off the garbage can, put the bag in, just kind of sloppily threw the lid back on, didn't fasten the lid. Jerry, come over. (laughs) He says, when you do a job, you do it right. You do it to the best of your ability. Did you, did you properly put that bag of garbage into the garbage can? And did you put the lid back on as it was before you approached it? I think, I think that's something I would, would, would teach my son if I'm fortunate enough to have a son one day. Or I would, I would teach it to, to anybody that, that maybe, <laughs> as if me teaching people were, was going to improve anybody's life. But I guess that's really it. Complete all tasks to the best of your ability. And you know what it takes, or, you sh- or if you don't or you do, it doesn't really matter. Approach the task, approach the job with... Um, with the mindset of doing it to the best of your ability, whatever it may be, whether it's putting the garbage in the garbage can or, or, you know, for me personally, this podcast, I'm, I'm really trying to give everything I have. I'm exhausting all avenues of, of, of discussion points. And I'm, I'm, you know, combing Instagram and combing my life for, for guests and, and making time to do it, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, do it to the best of your ability, because God, you have a whole universe inside you. And if you could pour that out onto the world, you might move it one tick on the old world-o-meter. Number 27, forgive yourself of past wrongs so long as you stop the processes that led you there. That's interesting. I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier as far as positive self-talk or, you know, soothing your own anxieties. You know, you... In the West, (laughs) obviously, we love to crucify ourselves and others. You know, we love to humiliate ourselves. You know, we love to um, see ourselves as being evil, being lesser than, because sometimes it's easier than to see yourself as being uh, a being who is 
a gigantic universe capable of having a relationship with God, you know? So, but you don't get anywhere, you don't get anywhere by, by denying that, denying your beauty and denying all that you are. And so, of course you'll go wrong. I'm going wrong right now, <laughs> but I forgive myself for that as long as I'm not going down that road any longer. I'm trying to turn around on the road at least. Number 28, play, laugh, smile, sing, dance, and be joyous. Keep your eyes open wide. Play, laugh, smile, sing, dance. Be joyous. Keep your eyes open wide. Number 29, give something back to your family and or your community with no regard for reciprocity. That's something that I think funnels into the idea of the collective and, and, and that uh, tribal absurdism, that tribe building that I'm honestly very excited to try and start <laughs> on some level, you know? Give something back with no regard for reciprocity. This is not something I do enough of, but I can imagine it's probably pretty important. Number 30. Teach someone how to do something so that you may learn it anew. Again, not something I do enough of, and I think it filters into this tribal collectivism, or this tribal absurdism, this idea of building a tribe of people who think for themselves and who want to be there and who want to grow. And maybe there's someone in your life that you could bring into your circle if, if you could just sort of give them the information they needed about how to get there. So that's it for the, the 30 thoughts of this what did I say? Pompous? I never thought I'd be pompous enough to do this. And again, I have to stress, I know I said you or if you a lot, but truthfully, this this came from me. This came from a very personal place. These are things that seem to have worked or things that I've attempted. Um, I hope you maybe find it useful. Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. Over and out.